Welcome to Nepal Now, the podcast where we discuss new ideas and approaches to move the country forward. My name is Marty Logan. Thanks for joining me for this episode, which, if you're counting, is number 52. You might be wondering what happened to the video version of the last episode, my chat with Sanjeev Chaudhary. Well, that's a good question. I received a rough cut and suggested two changes, and weeks later, I'm still waiting for the updated version. I promise to let you know if it ever appears. If you've been listening to Nepal Now for a while, you'll know that I sometimes switch up the usual one-to-one interview format. A couple episodes back, I was at a college collecting opinions from journalism students. And before that, I twice visited a village in Sindhupalchok district to see the state of maternal health. Today is also different. This episode is based on an interview I first recorded for Strive, a podcast I host for Interpress Service, or IPS, news. We talk so much about Nepal, as an example, that I thought you might be interested in hearing it too. The focus is human rights, specifically a new approach to assessing countries' human rights performance. I've been reporting about human rights for many years, and I know that more often than not, governments will respond to articles about serious violations, including killings, by saying that it didn't happen that way, or even if it did, it was a one-time incident that doesn't represent a pattern. And I think those types of reactions might be happening more often in this age of misinformation and disinformation. Too often the issue ends there, with no consequences. The great thing about today's topic, the Human Rights Measurement Initiative's Rights Tracker, is that it quantifies government's performances based on objective data in some cases and on in-depth interviews in others. It's not a perfect system, as you'll hear, but combined with the existing naming and shaming approach, it could be a better way to ensure that human rights are respected. Please listen now to my chat with Stephen Bagwell from HRMI and the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Stephen Bagwell, welcome to Strive Podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. I'm really excited to be here. Great. So what I find really interesting about the Human Rights Measurement Initiative is what I'm thinking of as the should be or could be element of the index. So for example, here in Nepal where I live, Nepal's HRMI score for right to food is 64%, meaning, if I understand correctly, that it has achieved 64% of what is possible. So I, I definitely want to ask you about how you determine that score, that 64%. But first, I'm really interested, why did you take this approach of trying to quantify human rights, countries' human rights performances? So there were a few reasons. Um, the, the first, I think, is that for coming from an academic standpoint, being sort of a, a human rights scholar, we see oftentimes qualitative stories, no matter how rich the detail, how rigorous those qualitative stories are compiled and discussed, that governments or other typically bad faith actors are able to just sort of wave their hands and say, oh, that's an isolated incident, or that's just your 
sort of impression of what happened. Um, and then that allows them to sort of get away with the behavior uh, because they don't take it seriously. They don't uh, acknowledge that it, that it is systematic and that it's, it's representative of something that is going on in a widespread manner. And so um, we don't quantify human rights because we don't think the qualitative stories are important. And we're not trying to sort of put a score on the amount of pain and suffering or maldevelopment that uh, societies have. But what we do think is that um, in tandem with some of those narratives, if you're able to back those narratives up with data, um, it makes it much more difficult for governments or other actors to sort of say, no, that's not happening or really argue with what you're trying to say. The second reason, um, and one of the Human Rights Measurement Initiative's co-founders has a really good TED talk on this concept, uh, is that what gets measured get, gets improved. If you look around the world right now, I think a hot button issue, most of the world is inflation and GDP growth are always up there too. But if you asked many policymakers or many people in sort of the public sphere, whether they're pundits on news shows or, or just people that you're having everyday conversations with, what is GDP growth or what causes inflation? I don't think most people would be able to give you a great answer, but they want to talk about it because they know it's important for some reason. People just sort of take it for granted. It's just a part of everyday conversation. And we kind of thought, wow, you know, what if we start measuring human rights and we can just make it a default part of the conversation? What if we can get human rights scores to be talked about in the same way that GDP or inflation or democratization or something else like that were, were, were talked about? How much of an impact would that have in how governments were reacting to stories about human rights, how advocate, how effective advocates could be, and um, you know, just generally, sort of a an idea that what you measure is what you focus on, and what you focus on tends to improve over time. So this is, you know, we're not an advocacy organization, but uh, in this sort of sense, I don't think most people get into human rights because they want to see human rights decline over time. This is sort of our way of hoping to start some positive trends. That makes a lot of sense. And as a journalist myself, I mean, I, I relate completely to your the first part of your answer, which is this idea of a, you know making a qualitative report of some human rights violation, um, which can be you know this horrible incident that, as a journalist, you hope grabs the attention of the audience of your report. So I, I understand why that, that can be a one-off and governments can often just say, well, it didn't happen that way and, and dismiss it that way. And there often doesn't seem to be an adequate follow-up to that response. So I'm wondering, I know you, this is quite new, but are you getting a sense yet of how governments are responding to this more quantitative attempt to measure how they're dealing with human rights? Sure. So uh, some governments more than others. Um... But, you know, there are always sort of entrepreneurs that adopt new things and start focusing on them and then they become more accepted over time. And we're hoping that's the trend that we're going to be seeing here as well. So we've done uh, a project uh, with the Human Rights uh, Commission in New Zealand that 
was mentioned in sort of several different policy reports, um, even at sort of the prime minister level. So clearly sort of quantitative indicators there making some of a difference um, or at least being talked about so that they could potentially make a difference. Mostly where we see sort of uptake and interest is by uh, at least so far activists and some human rights commissions and some intergovernmental organizations and other civil society actors. So um, we're still working on getting more government buy-in. We're always looking to talk to governments or, or really anybody about our data, but we are starting to see more and more people use it. Okay, that, that's interesting because I was also going to ask you about human rights defenders or activists and, and how they have responded to it, but it sounds positive. I guess one negative that I could think of if I'm playing devil's advocate is that governments could start to see this index as a bureaucratic kind of tool that is is just one of a million ways of measuring the work they're doing. You know, because human rights often, as you know, can be a very urgent uh, matter, right, where we need to deal with things very quickly. It's It can be, not always, but they can be life and death incidents. But if you have some so-called pencil pusher who's just shunting off the human rights work till next week when he or she feels like doing it, then it loses that um, urgency. Sure. I, I mean, I could, I could certainly see that. And I think that is one of the reasons I think we're always very careful to say that, you know, this sort of hybrid or complementary approach is really important. The way we generate scores, we, we generate them by country by year. And so, you know, there could be massive improvements between, I'll say, January and October in a, in a country in a year. And we're not going to catch that until the next year. Um, you know, the country's score stays the same for the entirety of that calendar year until we are able to release, collect and release more data. So, you know, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, even if we do a, a pretty good job of, of measuring what we're trying to measure, there are still limitations to that approach that are going to require other approaches sort of in complement with that. Okay, right. That makes sense. So getting back to what I mentioned in the beginning, can you explain exactly how you come up with the numbers? I don't think it's that complicated, but it would be great to hear it from you. Sure. So we have uh, two different ways of generating human rights scores. Uh, for economic and social rights, we use data that governments and intergovernmental organizations report. So uh, I think in your initial email, you mentioned the right to food in Nepal uh, and the data sources for that are come from UNICEF, uh, the World Health Organization and the World Bank um, and the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO stat. So these initial indicator scores are not data that we're going out and generating. We're collecting those from existing sources and most of the time, governments have some ability to say, this is how well we're doing on providing food for people, or this is how many children are stunted per uh, 100 or per 1,000. Um, you know, different, different indicators like that. Oftentimes, it's government reporting agencies that do this. They report the data to the World Bank or to FAO Stat. 
FAO stat looks at it, sort of makes sure it looks more or less correct. There might be some corrections, data harmonization, things like that. And then they will publish their sort of final indicator for the year. And that's when we collect it. And uh, because economic and social rights, the, the international law basis there is the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, um, which sort of builds in an acknowledgement that countries can only do so much with the resources that they have. And they're probably not going to see universal fulfillment of economic and social rights all at the same time, right? This is not an immediate thing that happens. And this is not um, something that's supposed to happen sort of equally for all countries at all levels of development. Uh, and so what we do is we sort of take that international law and we we kind of break it down a little bit and we take the raw indicators that the intergovernmental organizations are reporting and we then benchmark that by uh, GDP as sort of a, our GDP per capita as sort of a, a proxy for the level of resources that a country has. And so for every country that we have data for, uh, you'll see the raw indicator score maybe you know, Nepal does really well on the raw indicator score. I would have to dig in and look, um, but maybe they do really well on the raw indicator score for food, but then they're not doing as well as they could be or should be based on their level of income. And I know that was a, a follow-up question that you had as well, is what's the could be or should be and how do we determine that? Uh, I think this is probably a good time to explain that a little bit as well. Sure, yeah, please uh, go ahead. So, so what we do is... We have these, you know, a decade's worth of observations or more, and we look at what country has scored the best at that level of income, um, and whichever country that has scored the best in that 10-year range, that score uh, at that level of income gets a 100%, so it's kind of a sliding scale. Like if you've got a curve going up, you've got all these observations plotted, and the ones that are right on that curve all the way around are going, going to score 100%, meaning that they are doing the best they can with the resources that they have. And to see any further improvement, they really need either increased economic growth, they need uh, foreign aid, or some other source of resources that would allow them to improve. Um, so that's sort of where the 100% comes from. And sort of the score saying you're doing 64%, uh, that's just the difference between the best scoring country at that income level and what we observe as Nepal's score uh, at their level of income for that year. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. That's a great explanation. And I'm thinking, again, I find this really, really intriguing. And this approach for me, who's been you know, involved in and reporting on human rights for a long time. I just really, I like it. And I, and I really hope that it does become something that is a tool that governments are using um, and, and watching at the same, at the same time. So, okay, that was a great explanation of the ESC rights and how you do that. Now, please talk about political and civil rights. Sure. So um, just to sort of tie the two together, right, I, I mentioned that most of our ESR data at least starts with data that's reported by governments or by intergovernmental organizations. Um, 
for civil and political rights, we can't really rely on those sources. Uh, to my knowledge, I have never seen a government come out and say, hey, we tortured this many thousands of people per year, or we uh, violated the assembly and association rights of this many hundreds of thousands of people this year, right? Governments tend to not be very forthcoming with um, civil and political rights violations. And so we looked around, uh, and I should mention that one core aspect of everything that the Human Rights Measurement Initiative does is we have a principle of co-design. So we engage the communities that we are going to be uh, using to collect our data and that we hope will use our data. And we have a conversation about what, what could we do to help you? What are you willing to do to help us? What kind of final product would you find useful? Um, and so there was a co-design workshop with uh, several human rights advocates and they helped us come up with, this is how we should measure our civil and political rights. Um, and the way we did that was we realized that there are probably very few people who are more qualified uh, to talk about civil and political rights in a country than human rights experts that are in that country, uh, whether they are journalists who have reported on human rights issues or human rights defenders or people who work for like Amnesty International, you know, these are the people whose job it is to really know a lot about what is going on in their country uh, from a human rights perspective. And so we decided we would create this expert survey. Uh, and I'm happy to go into a lot of detail about that and why it's different than like a public opinion survey. Uh, but for now, I'll just say that experts, what the expert survey does is allow us to create scores for civil and political rights that we are also able to uh, be honest about our level of uncertainty. So where human rights experts might disagree, uh, you might see a little bit more uncertainty with that score and, and really get into some of these details about civil and political rights. Okay, great. Let me jump back to the ESC rights. For example, again, here in Nepal, just because I'm here and it's the country I, I know best, um, during COVID, I focused a lot on, or I was thinking a lot about the right to health. Nepal has very strong guarantees of right to health, including in its constitution. However, on the ground, there wasn't a lot of evidence that the right to health was being provided, respected, etc. And, and there are lots of reasons for that. And obviously, Nepal wasn't the only country having a problem doing that, providing health care for everyone. Um, but, you know, using the approach that you're using for ESC rights, would that be captured or would it also be useful to, again, be using some sort of confidential survey that would give you feedback about the actual situation on the ground? What I'm asking is, would there be a good reason to, again, be getting those confidential reports in some circumstances, at least for ESC rights? Um, I would I would love it if we also had uh, a survey for ESC rights. Um, one thing we do have is we have some qualitative data for economic and social rights from our survey. Uh, and so when you're talking about sort of the people at risk, uh, as part of our survey uh, that is mostly focused on civil and political rights, we will ask people 
are there certain groups that are at risk of having their economic and social rights violated? If so, which groups and which rights? And can you tell us more about that uh, in open, open-ended qualitative responses? In terms of whether or not we would be able to include uh, sort of actual measures like we do for the civil and political rights from an economic and social rights survey, that's something I, like I said, I would love to see, but our, our existing survey is already something that takes an hour to an hour and a half to do for many people. Um, and it's quite expensive to, to run in a variety of countries. That's why we have more data for economic and social rights than we do for civil and political rights. So um, that's something that would take a, that would take quite a lot, but it is something that I'm interested in exploring and maybe as Hermi continues to grow, uh, that might be a direction that we take. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Another another question jumped into my head uh, when you were speaking. You you mentioned that you're not you don't consider yourselves human rights advocates, and I think you meant in the way that Amnesty or Human Rights Watch would be human rights advocates. Um, but most human rights reporting, I think, approaches that work with the end result of calling out governments for violations. What is your uh, approach? What are you trying to do in relation to governments? And I think it's not calling out and shining, shining a harsh spotlight on governments, but you can explain that better than me. Sure. So I think uh, I, I like some of the terms that you use there. Uh, I know Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and others for a long time used tools that would be described as sort of naming and shaming. Uh, and I think they've moved towards calling it spotlighting. Um, for us, really, what we're trying to do is really get human rights in the conversation at the same level as GDP. Um, going back to that, what, what we're really trying to do is provide governments and advocates an ability to track progress on meeting their inner, their obligations under international law. Um, this is something that I think, you know, distinguishes what we're doing from say the sustainable development goals and from what Amnesty International is doing, right? The sustainable development goals, progress towards these sort of endpoints of development, but they're not legally binding. And many of them overlap quite extensively with obligations that governments have that are legally binding, uh, right? Like I think 180 something countries have signed uh, the, and ratified the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights. Uh, I might be a little off on that number, but it's in that ballpark. Um, and nobody is talking about how well they're doing, right? Uh, are they meeting their obligations? Are they doing everything that they can with what they have? And so I think it's, it's really important that we track that, um, both from the government side, governments should care if they're meeting their legal obligations and advocates should too. Um, obviously advocates do. So I, I think what we're doing is really trying to provide a starting point and an idea that you can't improve things until you know where you are. Like, how do you know if you've improved, if you didn't start? by saying, I'm definitely at this point right now, I'd like to get to that point um, later. Uh, and so that's that's really what we're trying to do is, is measure progress. We would love it if 
um, the positive improvements uh, got highlighted just as much as the negative, you know, the downturns did. That's not typically the way the news cycle works, but you know, if Nepal, the next time we release data has gone from a score of, you know, 64% on the right to food to 80% on the right to food, I think that is something that should absolutely be explored and absolutely be applauded as clearly Nepal did something to drastically improve their score based on their available resources. And we can do that while still acknowledging countries can do better, right? Like you're still only scoring 80%. Kudos for improving your score this much. You still have some room to improve. Um, so that's that's really kind of what I see and, and what I would like to see is not so much spotlighting or naming and shaming, but um, encouraging and um, accountability, I think are two values that I would say uh, come from, from our perspective. Okay. Thank you very much, Stephen. I find the initiative r- really interesting tool and such a different approach to human rights that it it really surprised me when I came across it. I'm sorry it took so long for me to, to f- realize it was there, but I'm certainly going to follow it very closely to see what kind of impact it has. Because I, I think, as you said, it could be a tool that governments are more likely to engage with rather than you know, the, the current approach. And it may turn out that we need a combination of these two, the so-called naming and shaming approach and your approach. But anyway, I think it's always great to have another option for trying to improve um, the human rights situation. And thanks very much for explaining it. It can be a bit complex when you get into the weeds, but I think you did a, a great job of making it clear. Thank you for saying that, Marty. It's always dangerous to give an academic an open mic and freedom to speak. Um, we, we tend to go on. So I, I hope it was informative and useful. I really enjoyed it. I'm happy to talk about the project or any questions you or your listeners might have. If they want to reach out, uh, feel free to, to give them my information or, or the website, whatever is useful for them. Okay, I will definitely do that. Thanks again, Steve. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks to Stephen Bagwell for chatting with me today. What do you think about this new human rights tool? Let us know on social media. We're at Nepal Now or at Nepal Now Pod on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. My name is Marty Logan. I produce Nepal Now, and I'll talk to you again soon.